Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, today we're going to be moving into a new philosopher. Well, not new, but new for the new for the podcast. We're going to be talking about Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching. Um, this philosopher is actually someone who it's not a hundred percent certain actually existed. There are various rumors. Some people think that this person did exist. Other people think that. This is actually the collection of works of quite a few different people. Um, more than likely, even if it was, it was all under one editor. So this is one of those people that goes so far back into history, we don't have an actual 100% accounting of if this is a real person. Now, with as with Socrates, you know, we... We know Socrates exists because of his students. Socrates himself didn't write anything. Um, so you have, in the early philosophy, uh, in different traditions, a lot of this, where you have either it's so ancient that nobody knows for sure if the person exists, or the person who actually originated the ideas uh, didn't write them down. But I want to go into this uh, and kind of give you a little bit of a background first on when this was. Um, this was somewhere in the 3rd to 2nd century uh, BCE, before Common Era, um, what used to be called BC. So this is two, three hundred years um, prior to, uh, you know, the, the beginning of the modern era. Um, the time period that this comes during is also the end of the Warring States, now, we've talked about in other podcasts previously that usually when you have a lot of conflict, you have a lot of chaos going on, this is when you seem to see the booms in both philosophy and in literature. And part of the reason for this is you have people that are trying to um, either recapture the past or move forward into the present and into the future. These people are doing so because they see the way that things are, are not working. Um, and they're trying to make something that will work. Now, with as with um, Confucius, um, you have somebody who's going back into the past uh, in this philosophy. Uh, remember, we talked about the difference between Confucius and Plato. Confucius falls along the lines of the conservatives wanting to go back to the way things were in a you know, golden age, uh, whereas people like Plato see as, well, we haven't done it right yet. We need to build the society that can do it right. <clears throat> so this is another one of the conservative uh, outlooks. And he basically puts it into a golden age where, you know, times were simpler and uh, people were not as divided from nature. And this is something you see in a lot of Eastern traditions. A lot of the problems that humanity faces have to do with the fact that we are not in line with nature anymore. We're separated from it. When we get to Buddhism, we'll talk about, about the fact that, you know, part of the suffering of Buddhism is the universe is one, and yet somehow we're isolated from that one. We're locked in ourselves. So this is a philosophy that is <clears throat> seeing that the better times were when things weren't so complicated, when we were more in a state of nature. Now, Western traditions have, you know, taken on the idea of state of nature quite frequently. You have Hobbes, um, who wrote about the state of nature being a time when everything was 
brutal and, you know, life was short and it was everyone for themselves and it was just monstrous. And then you have, you know, the state of nature people who who were like Rousseau, who saw it as kind of the golden age when we had everything better. Um, and this is definitely more along the lines with Rousseau than it is with Hobbes. So if we go in and just start looking at the books, um, the first book, you know, few dozen books, uh, books one through 37, talk about the way or the Tao. Um, and this is talking about it in general. And then books 38 through 81 are kind of split into where they're talking about virtue. So they're kind of talking about how to apply more, um, to be virtuous and live the virtuous life. And this is one of the big, um, traditions in all philosophy is kind of the idea of the virtuous happy life and how do we get there <clears throat> so in book one uh it starts out a way that can be followed is not a constant way a name that can be named is not a constant name so in other words even though he's trying to put a name to it it's not a solid thing the way the name uh, you know a name implies um, this is kind of a difficult concept to wrap your head around, but think of it's trying to describe something that is more organic, uh, not something that is a dead thing like a table or a rock. It's, it's something that is that's much more living and flowing. Uh, nameless it is in the beginning, nameless it is the beginning of the heaven and earth, named it is the mother of myriad creatures, and so always eliminate desire in order to observe its mysteries, always have desire in order to observe its manifestations. So right from the first um, stanza of this, uh, the first chapter of this, you start seeing he's talking about opposites, and there's a lot of the, you know, connection of opposites in this. Uh, throughout. That's what it that's what it is based on is sort of these emerging and flowings of opposite opposites into each other. Now we see something similar to this later on in Western philosophy with Hegel and his phenomenology of spirit. In phenomenology of spirit we have the um thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis. So we have an idea or a concept, and then it comes up with a contradictory idea or concept. The two fight it out, and you end up with a synthesis, which is a combination of the two ideas. And so there's always opposites at play. And then the synthesis, of course, then moves on to become the thesis, which then forms another antithesis and so forth. And until you have, you know, nature evolving, the spirit was, as Hegel called it, evolving. So in this we're dealing with uh, the opposites. Always eliminate desires in order to observe its mysteries is really talking about you have to kind of clear your head of what you want and what you want to see. And this is something that we have realized in modern science uh, and in modern psychology is that when you look for something, that tends to be what you find. So what you might be doing is imposing your view of nature upon nature instead of seeing it the way it actually is. Um, always have desires in order to observe its manifestations. Um, so you have to take this two-sided approach to it, kind of eliminate your desires and see what's there as it is. This again also would, um, you know, come before a philosophy like phenomenology, which we'll get to in much, much later episodes and much later season. Um, 
these two come these two come forth in unity but diverge in name in other words they're two sides of the same thing um they 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 are the opposites but they're part of the same thing their unity is known as an enigma a mystery that can't be solved Within this enigma is yet a deeper enigma, the gate of all mysteries. And in, as you sort of get these ideas of these two sides being one, it unlocks the door for the all of the other mysteries of the world. Chapter 2. Everyone in the world knows that when the beautiful strives to be beautiful, it is repulsive. Everyone knows that when the good strives to be good, it is no good. In other words... Um, Part of the problem that we have is when you try to be something, you fail. Um, and this may sound a little bit defeatist, but think of it in this way. When you're artificially pushing yourself, you're not going to get there. You know, when you're trying to be beautiful and you're throwing on all kinds of fancy clothes and fancy garments, what ends up happening is you end up failing. You, you put on a facade that is seen through easily. When you just kind of be yourself that's when you can be beautiful. So the act of striving forces you into artificial means, and you don't quite get there. Um, everyone knows when the good strives to be good, it is no good. You know, and a lot of this is, you know, when you strive to be good, that means you're trying to get the recognition for being good. You know, you want everybody to see that you are good. And so what you end up becoming is kind of a fake good. Um, a, a good that is only for show. Uh, this is, you know, something that's been in ethics for a long time. If you do a good act just for recognition or to avoid punishment, is it really a good act? Or is it just something that is self-serving? And if it's just self-serving, then it's not actually something good. So this kind of ties into the ethics of you do good because it's the right thing to do, not because you hope somebody will recognize you. <clears throat> to have and to lack generate each other. Difficult and easy give form to each other. So what he's going into in the rest of this is that the two opposites of things will be what define them. It defines the boundaries. You know, if you don't have... Uh, lack, um, then you don't know what it is to have. And if you, you know, don't know what it is to have, you don't know that you lack. So these two things, even though they're opposites, they're opposites that define each other. Um, you know, light and dark. Uh, dark is the absence of light. Light is the, you know, overcoming of dark. And so these two things define each other. Um, goes off and gives some other examples of the same thing. Uh, long and short, high and low, note and rhythm, uh, before and after, follow each other. Um, that is why the sages abide in the business of non-action and practice the teaching that is without words. They work with the myriad creatures and turn none away. <clears throat> so in other words, um, they live in the middle. Um, they don't strive for one or the other. Um, they realize that both are there. And so when that when they don't strive for the light or they don't strive for the good and they stay in the middle, they are able to actually accomplish these things. Um, they're able to get there because they're not caught up in a sense of striving. Um, because striving is also about image and about the way see, people see you. They produce without possessing. They act with no expectation of reward. 
you know, again, this goes back to the idea, if you only do things because you expect a reward, then you're doing it for selfish reasons, you're doing it for the wrong reasons, and the reward, if it comes, is a hollow reward. It's, it's a show reward, something you want recognition, you want everybody to see that you're this. Um, if you're actually doing what you should be doing, you're doing it just because that's what you should be doing, regardless of anyone sees it or not. Uh, when their work is done, they do not linger, and by not lingering, merit never deserts them. Uh, they don't sit around and brag about what they've done. See, look what I did, look what I did. And then they live into this, you know, stuck in the past. I'm, I'm sure you've probably seen people who are like this. They, you know, accomplish something, and then the rest of their life, they have to show everybody this one thing they accomplished instead of accomplishing something and then moving on to something else you know, and not lingering over it. Uh, chapter 3. Not paying honor to the worthy leads people to avoid contention. Not showing reverence for precious goods leads them not to steal. So in other words, whenever you make something uh, desirable, you, you tend to give people temptations. Um, when you have wealth and you put this wealth out there as desirable, uh, you make people likely to steal because they want to have that wealth. Um, if you don't hold these things up to esteem, people don't get caught up in chasing them. And there's really a lot that you can say that this applies to the modern era. Um, you know, think about how much time people spend, especially under capitalism, chasing status symbols. And, you know, even to the point where they become dishonest to get them. You know, look at how much white-collar crime there is, how much embezzlement there is, because it's all about being able to get what's the most desirable, which is wealth. Um, this is why the sages bring things to order by opening people's hearts and filling their bellies. Now, this is kind of a, a, a very, I guess you would call it an anti-democratic uh, perspective. Um, you don't want the people striving. You want them content. You, you want them with full bellies. Um, people with full bellies and a sense of security and stability don't run around causing trouble. They, they live their lives and everything is peaceful and harmonious. And you have to remember that the whole basis of this philosophy is restoring that in a time period that does not have that. You know, when people are striving, when they are going to war, when everybody's trying to become, you know, the emperor and everybody's trying to increase their own power. And, you know, this is kind of being offered as an antidote to that. If you, you know, stop putting these things out there, people will stop chasing after them. If you fill their bellies and make them content, um, they're not going to think too much. Now, you can also kind of look at the flip side of this and think about things like Brave New World. You know, how much does this resemble what's going on in Brave New World? For those of you who haven't read Brave New World by Huxley, um, in Brave New World, basically the society tries to keep people from thinking too much. So it gives them lots of distractions and makes sure they have full bellies. And if they start getting anxious, it even gives them soma to keep them from you know, thinking about anything. Uh, Brave New World is a bit of an extreme compared to this, but it's a similar idea. If you keep the people happy, if you keep the majority happy, you keep them fed, 
then you don't have to worry about revolution. You don't have to worry about crime. You don't have to worry about, you know, all of these terrible things going on. Uh, they weaken the people's commitments and strengthen their bones. They make sure that the people are without knowledge or desires. And those with knowledge do not dare to act. Sages enact non-action and everything becomes well-ordered. So if everybody's not running around trying to do things, uh, trying to accomplish things, then what you have is peace and stability. And remember, that's the goal of this, is peace and stability. Uh, chapter 4. The way is like an empty vessel. No use could ever fill it up. Vast and deep, it seems to be the ancestor of myriad creatures. It blunts their sharpness, untangles their tangles, softens their glare, merges their dust. Deep and clear, it seems to be there. I do not know whose child it is. It is the image of what was before the Lord himself. So in other words, this is kind of a... Everything comes out of nothingness. Um, and, you know, whether you ascribe to science, whether you ascribe to, you know, creationism, uh, before the universe was as it was, it was kind of a void. And either the Big Bang, you know, or some other process like that started everything in motion, or some creator started everything in motion. And that's kind of what this idea was, is that before everything was going on, it was just this vast, empty vessel. Chapter 5. Heaven and earth are not benevolent. They treat the myriad creatures as straw dogs. Sages are not benevolent. They treat the people as straw dogs. It is not the space between heaven and earth is not the space between heaven and earth like a bellows, empty yet inexhaustible. Work it and more will come forth. An excess of speech will lead to exhaustion. It is better to hold on to the mean. So in other words, um, again, don't over push anything. Stay in the middle. Because the world is composed of opposites. And on the you know edge of the opposites, things become chaotic. Whereas things are more peaceful and stable when you're in the mean, in the middle of the opposites. Chapter 6. The spirit of the valley never dies. She is called the enigmatic female. The portal of the enigmatic female is called the root of heaven and earth. Um... An unbroken gossamer thread, it seems to be there, but use will not unsettle it. So this is kind of, again, you know, think of more modern ideas of this, you know, mother nature. You know, the earth is sort of the mother that everything springs out of. Um, and it's, it's, you know, fragile but unbreakable at the same time. Um, it's, it's the beginning of everything. Chapter 7. Heaven is long-lasting, earth endures. Heaven is able to, long to be long-lasting, and the earth is able to endure, because they do not live for themselves, and so they are able to be long-lasting and endure. This is why the sages put themselves last, and yet come first, treat themselves as unimportant, and yet are preserved. Um, it is not because they have no thought of themselves that they are able to, is it not that they are, I'm sorry, is it not because they have no thought of themselves that they are able to perfect themselves. So in other words, you have to get over the selfishness of ego. You have to get over the selfishness of this is about me. And when you just are, you sort of become a, a beacon for everything else. Because the sages don't try to be anything, they just, you know, 
exist as they are, uh, they become preserved as a beacon for everyone else. Um, the people that build things and hustle and bustle, they, they build things that are temporary, they collapse into dust, and they don't endure. And think about it too, like what are some of the most enduring things? It's not the buildings that people build, with the exception of very few. Most of them crumble into ashes in, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand years. Um, but think about, you know, some of the knowledge that gets passed on for thousands and thousands of years. You know, things that are simple, like wisdom, um, like writings. You know, these are the things that become uh, immortal. We know about Helen of Troy because of, you know, a poem about her, the, the Iliad. Um, what buildings of the Trojans still exist? You know, none. Um, maybe some ruins buried deep underground, but yet worldwide people know who Helen of Troy is. So this striving for the physical, striving for this recognition now generally leads to obscurity. It's just those who, you know, kind of live the quiet life, endure and quietly show the way. Those are the ones that endure, that are around forever. Uh, the highest good is like water. Water is good at benefiting the myriad creatures while not contending with them. It resides in places that people find repellent, so come clo comes close to the way. Um, <clears throat> with this, you know, this is one of those things where uh, it, it's talking about water, but it's also talking about the way and how you should be. Water basically nourishes everything around it. Um, it, you know, gives life to all plants and animals and humans, and um, it, it provides, uh, you know, without asking for everyone, and therefore it's essential, um, and yet it, you know, occupies the lowest spaces. You know, it fills the oceans, it fills the lakes, it fills the river, lowly places that no one else wants to be in. Um, so in other words, it doesn't put itself up as high and mighty and grand, um, but yet it is a benefit to everyone. Now, if you think about it, this definitely can be seen as a, as a you know, an ethical way of behaving. You know, always be a benefit to everyone and everything everywhere you go. Um, and you will always be welcome. Don't pick the best palace, the best house, the best land, whatever, and occupy it for yourself, and then you'll never be an object of scorn, you know, because if you have that thing, those things that everybody else wants, if you occupy that place, then that means everyone will always be trying to displace you and push you out. Uh, chapter 9. To hold the vessel upright in order to fill it, it is not good to step... I'm sorry. To hold the vessel up in upright in order to fill it, is not as good as to stop in time. If you make your blade too keen, it will not hold an edge. Um, in other words, you don't want things too fine, the, the too full. Um, your blade, I, I don't know, this is something that's kind of outdated for modern times, but you can still think about it like kitchen knives. If you sharpen your kitchen knife too much, that sharpness is very thin and it means it will dull easier. 
You know, this goes back to the days when people had swords and axes and things like that. War weapons. If your sword is too sharp, you bang it against the, your opponent's armor a few times and you've knocked that sharp edge off altogether. So you want it sharp enough to cut, but not so sharp that it's going to dull easily. And again, this is a warning against extremes. Um, this is a warning of you want that perfect spot in the middle. Chapter 10. Embracing your soul and holding on to the one, you can keep them from departing. Concentrating on your chi, vital energies, and attaining the utmost suppleness, can you be a child? I'm sorry, the first one is a question. Embracing your soul and holding on to the one, can you keep them from departing? Concentrating on your chi, your vital energies, and attaining the utmost supplement, can you be a child? In other words, can you um, kind of hold on to the, the things that you think are essential and actually really hold them? Or will they eventually depart? You know, as much as you want to hold on to being a child forever, you eventually grow older, you know, grow old and die. So just because you concentrate on holding your youth doesn't mean you can. It's still going to slip away. So it's a worthless endeavor. You know, again, this is another thing that really applies to modern life. You know, think about how obsessed we are with staying young forever. You know, a woman should never look like she's older than 19 or 20. A man should never look like he's older than, you know, 20, 24, 25. Um, you know, we dye our hair, get plastic surgery, uh, get the right skin treatments. Um, all of these things to, you know, make sure that we never lose our youth. And none of these things work because you can have all the plastic surgery in the world, but your body's still aging and you're still dying. And, and basically what you're doing is wasting your time, wasting your energy, and really wasting your life because you're not embracing the place you are. Okay. Uh, chapter 11. Uh, 30 spokes are joined at the hub of the wheel, but only by relying on what is there do we have the use of the... What is not there do we have the use of the carriage. Uh, this is a little bit of a complicated philosophical idea, but think about it this way. You have solid objects. But for in order for solid objects to be able to move, you have to have empty spaces. So you have to have the emptiness as well. Like my body is a solid object. But if the room I'm in was nothing but solid objects and there were no there was no empty space, the room is not usable because I can't even move. The fact that there is empty space allows what is there to become useful. Um, I can, you know, store things in the room, solid objects. But again, if it's everything is a solid object, I can't interact with those things. They just become as if frozen in amber. So you have to, you know, have this empty space in order to make the solid spaces uh, functional. That, that's kind of what this is getting at. The five colors blind our eyes. The five's no, five notes deafen our ears. The five flavors deaden our palates. Uh, the chase and the hunt madden our hearts. Precious goods impede our activities. This is why the sages are for the belly and not for the eye. And so they can cast off the one and take up the other. 
So in other words, um, this is kind of a warning against being pulled into the superficial glow of things. You know, that surface glimmer. Um, it's, it's much more important to have a full belly, according to this philosophy, than a beautiful painting. Um, the beautiful painting um, might inspire you to steal it, might inspire you to feel jealous because you can't produce that painting. Um, it, you know, it, it could inspire all kinds of negative things. So this is one of the, the warnings against being too much about the superficial. You know, don't try to have the best foods. Um, and, and, you know, it, it forces you into, you know, doing extra things to get your food. You know, be more, uh, live more simply. Um, you know, enjoy things uh, without having to be excessive about it. You know, this somewhat reminds me of uh, later philosopher uh, Henry David Thoreau. Um, you know, and Thoreau's idea of, you know, don't spend your time on fancy things. You, you need the utilitarian things, and those are the things that are best. You know, a house that keeps you dry is, is all you need. You know, keeps you warm and dry. You don't need, a, a, you know, a 5,000 square foot mansion. Um, that adds nothing to uh, your overall well-being. And in fact, it takes away from it. You know, there's a lot of warnings against greed in this book. There's a lot of warnings against wanting excessive things. And again, if you think about the modern era, this is very much a book that uh, could be written to speak to our times. Because look at how much people think they have to have the biggest car, the biggest house, the, you know, the, the fanciest clothes and jewelry. Um, and all of those things never make them happy. Um, chapter 13. Be apprehensive about favor or disgrace. Revere calamity as you revere your own body. Um, what does it mean to be apprehensive about favor and disgrace? To re re receive favor is to be in a position of a subordinate. Uh, when you get it, be apprehensive. When you lose it, be apprehensive. In other words, when you get these spots of recognition, whether it's favorable or unfavorable, um, they're both bad things. Um, they're, they're both... Uh, something that causes anxiety and unhappiness. Because even when you get, you know, uh, appreciation, uh, when you get favor, um, that puts you in a subordinate level because it can always be taken away. You're forced to constantly fight to keep it. And if you're in disgrace, you're forced to constantly get out of it. Um, this is similar to an idea that you see in a lot of cultures uh, throughout the world where you don't necessarily want to be seen. You know, if you look at the, the you know, the mythologies of, of, you know, all of the different traditions, the Chinese traditions, the Greeks, the Romans, the Persians, etc., you know, you have these people who get the favor and get the attention of the gods. You know, they get praise or they get blame. And those turn out to be the people who get destroyed. And the moral of those stories, as the moral of this is, is stay in the middle. You know, don't don't become somebody who, you know, the gods will smile on because the gods are fickle and they will just quit.
quickly taken away from you. And you have to live in constant fear of what they're going to take away from you. Um, or if you have, they've got your attention, you've gotten their attention and you're in disfavor, you know, you've, you've got to then fight to try to get out of that. So there is sort of this idea here and in a, a lot of the mythologies around the world that you want to avoid being noticed too much. Um, now, from a perspective of power, this is definitely something that uh, those in power could and have exploited. Um, this idea of being happy where you are. Uh, again, it brings me back to the ideas in Brave New World, where you have the different levels of people. You know, the alphas, the betas, uh, the deltas, the gammas. And they basically... The, you know, the lower down the, the chain you are, basically the story they tell them is be happy you're not part of the upper classes. You can live a simple life in peace. Um, those people have lots of headaches, lots of aggravation, lots of struggles. Uh, you can be content where, with where you are. Now, you can see where this idea would definitely favor the people in, in power. You know, don't challenge us because we're miserable, we're unhappy, and, you know, you're, you're better off with living a simple life. Um, you know, even, even in Christianity, you see things like it's, you know, easier to uh, drive a camel through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. Sort of the idea of be content with your simple life because you're cursed if you're at the top. Again, this is something that can be very much seen as serving the people at the top. But you have to remember, in his perspective, this is trying to get society back under control. He's lived through his entire life and for generations before him through the Warring States period where everything was struggles for power and nothing was stable and everything was up in the air. And this is kind of a longing for the way things were back then. And if everybody just did what they were told, we'd all be happier. Okay, uh, chapter 14. Look for but not seen, its name is Minute. Looked for but not seen, its name is Minute. Uh, listened for but not heard, its name is Rarified. I'm sorry, Minute, not Minute. I apologize. Uh, grab for but not gotten, its name is Subtle. Uh, so in other words... What people want um, are the, 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 the rare, hard-to-see, hard-to-find, hard-to-grab things. Um, they are things that people will put their, all of their energies to. But again, this is a warning against chasing those things. Uh, chapter 15. In ancient times, the best and most accomplished scholars were subtle, mysterious, enigmatic, can't say that word, and far-reaching. Their profundity was beyond understanding. Because they were beyond understanding, only with difficult can we try to describe them. Uh, poised like one who must ford a stream in winter, cautious like one who fears his neighbors on every side, reserved like a, a visitor. In other words, you can't just look at simply... Uh, any of the ancient scholars, any of the ancient wise people, because there are lots of layers. And even with me going through this as I am, there's a lot of layers that I'm not touching on. You know, I'm, I'm not giving you the 
the one perfect, complete reading of this text. I'm, I'm giving you some insight into it. You know, things like this you have to read yourself. You have to also see what other people have interpreted it. You have to, you know, think about these things on your own. Um, you might take, you know, a single chapter out of here and spend days and days just thinking about the possibilities and drawing all of the connections. Well, I don't have time to do that in this podcast. But again, you know, what I'm doing is kind of opening these doors um, and encouraging you to go a lot farther than where we're going here. Uh, this is just a step in the door. Okay. Um, chapter 16. Attain extreme tenuousness. Preserve quiet integrity. The myriad creatures are all in motion. I watch as they turn back. Uh, the teeming multitude of things each returns home to its root, and returning to one's root is called stillness. This is known as returning to one's destiny. Uh, this is kind of an idea of removing yourself for a bit and just watching how things happen, seeing everything around you strive and try. And when you look at it long enough and you see it long enough, you realize that all of this striving and trying and fighting returns to stillness. It returns to quiet eventually. You know, all of this is a temporary state. Um, but you have to kind of bring yourself outside of it. And there, there's, there's a lot of this in um, a lot of Eastern and Western philosophies that, you know, if you're too caught up in everything that's going on, you don't have time to really sit back and think about it. Now, in a lot of the Eastern philosophies, this is something that only the philosopher should do. Uh, the, the common people should live more simply and just follow what the sages have said. Uh, there's a lot of this in Western philosophy too, but you do have the philosophers, particularly people like the existentialists who are, no, you've got to fight this out for yourself. Can't rely on what somebody else has told you. Um, chapter 17. The greatest rulers is but a shadow, the greatest of rulers is but a shadowy present, presence. Next is the ruler who is loved and praised. Next is the one who is feared. Next is the one who is reviled. Um, those lacking in trust are not trusted. Uh, but the greatest rulers are cautious and honor words. When their task is done and work complete, their people, their people all say, this is just how we are. Okay, this is a pretty important section because it does break down what a ruler should be. Um, the greatest are but a shadowy presence. And what he means by this is that they're not flashy. Um, it, it almost appears like they're not doing anything. And yet everything in society is functioning the way it should. You know, this is because they are behind the scenes and they're competent and they're making the slight adjustments that keep everything on track. You know, they're not doing flashy speeches and large parades and big rallies. And, you know, they're not constantly, I did this for you. I did that for you. Um, you know, it, it's that's not what the greatest of rulers uh, is like. 
Um, they're almost anonymous in society, but yet they move society forward. Uh, the next best, if you can't have that, is the one who's loved and praised. So the, the ruler that everybody loves is, is a great ruler, but they're not the greatest. They're one step below that. You know, the people see the things they do and they do good things for the people. And so they're loved, they're admired. Uh, that's the next below the top. Um, below that is the one who is feared. You know, um, you, you do what that ruler says because you're afraid they're going to kill you. Um, it reminds me of the, you know, the saying in Russia, um, when Russia still had czars, the, the common people had a saying, uh, God bless the czar and keep him far away from here. Uh, in other words, you know, they didn't want to be drawn into that, to be drawn into that circle. Uh, these people were fearful. Um, a lot of Russian uh, czars and Russian dictators after during the Soviet Union um, you know, uh, Stalin was very much someone who was feared, uh, even by his closest circle, because it seemed like eventually Stalin would become suspicious of people he had promoted and then have them executed or imprisoned. Uh, then below that is the one that is reviled, the one that's hated. That's sort of the worst leader you can have, the leader that everybody hates. And a lot of it is because that person can't be trusted. They will say one thing and do another. So this is kind of the worst of the leader types. Uh, chapter 18. When the great way is abandoned, there are benevolence and righteousness. When wisdom and intelligence come forth, there is great hypocrisy. When the six familial relationships are out of balance, there are kind parents and filial children. When the state is in turmoil and chaos, there are loyal ministries. Okay, to boil this part down simply, um, when you have these illusions that um, there's benevolence and righteousness, that's because you no longer have the highest of the rulers. You no longer have the, the rulers that, um, you know, just make everything happen and the people don't even realize it. They think that's just the flow of nature. Um, when you have to have, you know, benevolence and righteousness, um, that's because things aren't as good as they seem. And, you know, think about societies when they're collapsing. You generally tend to get a rise of religious extremism, this sort of idea of righteousness, and that we're fighting a war against evil, and, you know, we're fighting the devil or the demons or the forces of chaos or whatever it is. So whenever you have this sense of righteousness, um, you're in a society that is beginning to tumble down. And benevolence, um, that means you're kind of living in a state where you are feeling like, well, I guess I should be grateful because they're giving me these things. Uh, they're providing these things for me. Um when wisdom and intelligence come forth, there is great hypocrisy. Now, one of the things about this, and this is seems counterintuitive, but when you think about it, when um, wisdom and intelligence are uh, praised and when they're seen as a benefit, you have a lot of people who come forth who fake things. 
Um, they want to have the recognition of being uh, wise. And so they fake their credentials. They fake uh, papers. They fake, you know, they basically are not what they claim to be, but they wrap themselves up in, you know, academic titles or, you know, government titles or things like that where they're, you know, I'm wise and here's my title that proves that I'm wise. And so you get this sense of it's more about show than actuality. Um, wise people would, truly wise people would be in the, the level of the highest ruling uh, rulers. They would be people who just do their thing and everybody benefits from it. And, you know, things move forward and things move smoothly. Uh, when you get people that are having to get credit, this is when you start to get uh, not only hypocrisy, but fraud. Okay, I'm going to break off this episode here. Uh, we're leaving off on, we'll be starting 19 next time. Um, I didn't want to get too much into this because I know this is a lot to digest at once. So uh, I will be doing uh, another large section of this fairly soon. Uh, this I'm going to do the same way I did Confucius, and I'm going to try to split it up into three sections. Um, but I'm going to break off there, and I hope all of you are doing well, and I hope all of you are staying safe. Have a good night.